I want to say welcome everyone and to Big Tent USA. At Big Tent USA, we put democracy above partisanship and we're building a women-led voter coalition that does just that. We care about protecting the guardrails of democracy, ensuring government accountability and transparency and increasing civic participation. We have a jam-packed June. So please take a look at our website Upcoming events include Tuesday, January 6th at noon, we will hear from Maxim Thorne, CEO of Civic Influencers, a great org making young voices and votes matter in our democracy. Wednesday, June 14th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, Academy Award nominated screenwriter Billy Ray and public opinion researcher Gretchen Barton will break down how voters feel about the state of the nation and how to message across the political divide. On Wednesday, June 21st at 7 p.m., Professor Larry Diamond, Professor of Political Science and Sociology at Stanford University will discuss the 12 steps to autocracy. Bring a cocktail to that one, I think. And newly booked, we have on January 28th, uh, June 28th, not January, June 28th at 7 p.m. Eastern time, Stephen Vladek, UT law professor, and author of The Shadow Docket, How the Supreme Court Uses Stealth Rulings to Amass Power and Undermine the Republic. His book is everywhere and he is everywhere, so we're really excited to get an hour with him at the end of June. I am so honored to introduce my new friend and a big tent friend, Evangeline Morphis. Evangeline is a producer and educator who has worked in theater, film, and television and for 25 years was a professor in the theater and film divisions of Columbia University. She writes frequently on the arts and politics for the Wall Street Journal, uh, Politico, Reuters, and NBC.com. Her late husband was the American pol political historian, Alan Brinkley, whose memory is an inspiration for tonight's discussion. The Zoom is yours, Evangeline. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, I'm really thrilled to be here at Big Tent, and I can't imagine two more exciting people to be talking about uh, where we are now and how we got here in this American moment than John Alter and David Greenberg. Uh, John Alter is an award-winning author, journalist, and producer. His most recent book, his very best, Jimmy Carter, A Life, has really changed the way we look at the Carter presidency. His earlier books include three New York Times bestsellers, The Center Holds, Obama and His Enemies, The Promise, President Obama, Year One, and The Defining Moment, FDR's 100 Days and the Triumph of Hope. A former senior editor and columnist at Newsweek, he is a longtime political analyst for NBC News and MSNBC. He won an Emmy for the HBO documentary, Breslin and Hamlin, Deadline Artists. John's weekly Substack newsletter, Old Goats, Ruminating with Friends, is a must read for anyone who wants to know what's what in today's politics. And he hosts Alter Family Politics each week on Sirius XM with his three amazing children. But my favorite credit of his is as executive producer, along with Gary Trudeau, of one of Amazon's first series, Alpha House, about a wacky group of Republican senators who share a house in DC. David Greenberg is a professor of history and journalism and new media at Rutgers University and writes frequently on contemporary politics and public affairs. 
His most recent book, Republic of Spin, an inside history of the American presidency, shows us through more than 100 years of history how presidents from Wilson to Obama used spin as both a tool of manipulation and also a way of opening up our democracy. He is currently working on a biography of the civil rights icon, John Lewis. Now, my favorite credit of his is his first book, Nixon's Shadow, about the image of Richard Nixon in the press and popular culture. And I used to keep that book on my syllabus in all of my film classes at Columbia. So I'm really thrilled they are both here. Uh, the topic is, how did we get here in this political moment? Uh, but maybe the first question is, where are we? Are we there yet? We keep hearing about authoritarianism, about fascism, about being on the road to losing our democracy. I really would like each of you to weigh in and tell us, are we at that moment in time or is this kind of a garage rest stop <laughs> on a highway that isn't going there? Well, I mean, I think when you're in the present, you you don't know the future and you know, we are at a fork in that sense. I think we're post-Trump trying as a nation to claw our way back from the precipice. Um, we have had sort of the good news is that the 2018 and 2020, and even to some degree, the 22 elections all suggested that Trump was sufficiently alienating to enough Americans that we were resisting sort of the siren song of kind of going further in that, call it what you will, sort of authoritarian, MAGA, paleoconservative direction. You can also look around the world and see some of these Trump-like figures like Bolsonaro in Brazil, Duterte in the Philippines have gone. Um, others, uh, Orban in Hungary, Erdogan was just reelected in Turkey. So. I think we're at a very uncertain moment about what the future holds and whether this sort of attraction to these strong men and to this crude, angry populism that sort of marked the end of the last decade is going to continue and, and revive or whether we're slowly somehow putting it back in its box. The one thing that... Um, uh, Kitty mentioned in the introduction that I think I'll just pick up on too, was this point about Big Ten trying to message across the political divide. Because I think one thing we've learned from recent elections is that people are persuadable. And this is partly what I say in my book, Republic of Spin. We're tempted to think these days because there is such polarization and partisanship that everybody's just locked into their corners with these unshakable partisan loyalties. And while that's true for a lot of people, elections still turn on whether you can persuade people in the middle with perhaps more lightly held attachments uh, to break your way. And on this score, I think what's really important is that those interested in restoring a politics of normalcy, a politics of sanity, a politics that resembles kind of the, you know, New Deal, welfare state, mixed economy, two-party system that we've had for the last 75 years, 
have to make sure that people tempted to vote for Trump or whoever uh, inherits his mantle aren't so put off by the Democratic Party's messaging that they run into those others' arms. In other words, there are dangers on the left that we have to be careful of, that the Democratic Party not be seen as alienating, uh, off-putting, too high and mighty, too elitist, all the critiques that we know so that they can continue, as I think they have in recent elections, to win back the center. That's such a reversal of what used to be the critique of the Democratic Party as opposed to the Republican Party, who were thought to be elites, et cetera. Jonathan, where where do you think we are now? How how far into this spectrum of democracy versus authoritarianism have we journeyed? Well, first of all, I think David's summary was terrific. He's a very important American historian, um, and I think he teed it up really well. Um, I am still worried about the 2024 election. I wrongly expected that after January 6th, Donald Trump would be finished politically, even if he wasn't impeached and removed and thereby prevented from um, running again. Um, I, I thought, you know, when I listened to say Mitch McConnell's speech after he shamefully sabotaged uh, Trump's second impeachment trial, um, but he sounded like he wanted Trump prosecuted in that speech, if you go back and listen to it. And so I think we had every reason to believe until um, McCarthy went to um, Mar-a-Lago and threw Trump a lifeline uh, shortly after Trump left office. There was a period at the beginning of 2021 when we really had some hope that this was behind us and that our long national nightmare was over to quote, you know, Gerald Ford uh, talking about Nixon. And, but it wasn't to be. And, you know, MAGA has shown surprising strength and the, you know, what I think of as the banana Republican party, party that uh, more often um, follows in the path of um, what used to be called banana republics in Latin America when they were mostly authoritarian regimes, um, is not only alive and well, uh, it is likely to nominate Trump for uh, re-election. And the thing about American politics is that if you have the mantle of a major party nomination, you can always get elected uh, because things happen. So for instance, if you know Joe Biden got sick in the middle of the campaign and suddenly the Republicans could cast this as Trump, we you know, the devil we know versus Kamala Harris. And they could make a pretty good case that it was a Trump-Harris um, contest. You know, that that could allow Trump with the help perhaps of third party candidates siphoning off a few points from, uh, from Biden that could help him slip back into office. And I think we have to understand the dire ramifications of Trump being reelected. It's basically lights out for American democracy. Let, let me ask you both about this idea of the third party candidacy. And somebody in the chat also asked about no labels. And this idea terrible, of terrible idea, terrible destructive. Could you talk awful. a little bit about when the world exploded before 
and historically with these three uh, third party candidates. And, and I know, John, you're working on um, a project that talks about these defining moments, uh, including Wallace's speech and others. Like, it also sounds to me as if, John, you were talking about a lost moment, that there could have been a moment after January 6th where there was a rejection of this. Right. And, and that defining moment didn't happen. So talk a little bit about those two issues, the idea of a third party candidacy and also have there been lost defining moments in this? So, um, yes, I mean, uh, so to me, the shorthand that I think historians will likely use when they're looking at um, the Republican Party in this period is that every Republican faced the character test of their generation. It was a very binary situation. Either passed the test like Liz Cheney and Mitt Romney, or you failed the test and you put party over country. And it's not really a lot more complicated than that. And unfortunately, large numbers have been failing the test and they figured out how to rationalize this man who says he would quote, terminate unquote, the US constitution where he returned to office, that he would um, not only purge the FBI of anybody who ever took part in any investigation of his wrongdoing, but use it as his private agency. He's not gonna abolish the FBI, he's gonna turn it into his own private agency, uh, which we've seen in other countries when they're headed down authoritarian road. So this, this is a very, very dangerous man. And we now have seven years of experience with him and, and yet there are still people who are so craven uh, that they, they fail, you know, they fail the character test. And I, I, when I think of this character test, just to I think about my own late father who, you know, was enjoying college in, in December of 1941. And um, when democracy was in peril and his country called, he answered the call and he enlisted and, and was a you know, combat aviator, was shot down. And, and he didn't say, I'd like to finish college. I'd like to put college ahead of democracy. He put democracy first. And you have you know, large numbers of people in one of our political parties who are not putting democracy first. Now, I'm not for calling them fascists if that hurts the Democrats in the next election. If that, to me, I'm very pragmatic about that. And I think that it's less important to virtue signal by giving them you know, the right name than to think about well, what might turn people off if fascism turns people off? Don't use that word. Use authoritarian or some other way of describing them. Think very pragmatically about getting um, past this 2024 election and getting Joe Biden, who I don't think I wrote in the New York Times, I didn't think he should run. But now that he's running, it's a fait accompli and we all need to get behind him. And the problem with no labels is that we don't have the luxury of going third party at this point. There have been other times in American history, you know, if, you know, I wrote about Jimmy Carter, he's running against Gerald Ford in 1976. They're not really that different. If there had been a third party candidate, the consequences of that him tilting the election one way or another would not be serious. But the consequences of Jill Stein in 2016 were very, very serious. And, you know, obviously people know about um, the Ralph Nader situation in 2000, we would have avoided a, 
war that killed hundreds of thousands of people in all likelihood if, if Ralph Nader had, had not been uh, selfish about that. I interviewed him on my old goat Substack. So it's really important for people to say to these, Nancy Jacobson and the other people who are organizing uh, No Labels, Joe Lieberman, stand down, back off, the stakes are too high. You can deal with the fact that you're unhappy with both parties at another time in our history, down the road after the Trump menace has been dealt with. And that we have a, what, what I think some political scientists call um, a, um, a, a polarization that is non-linear. Um, in, in other words, uh, that, that the, the right and the danger from the right is considerably more serious than at least at present, the, continue, the, the danger from the left. And I say that who's been very critical of you know, left, leftists inhibiting free speech on campus. And I think there's a lot wrong with so-called woke politics. I think people on the left lead with their chins a lot when they talk about things like you know, uh, you know, uh, abolish uh, uh, the, the police. This kind of thing is very- well, let, me ask, let me ask David to leap in here on this because it, John talked about this being a really clear binary decision. And yet, was it spun that way? How did the nation perceive of these very clear decision points? And well, is, it a failure of, is it a failure of identifying what the issues are or spinning? I, I think... John is exactly right about this no labels delusion. It's just the completely wrong time for this. I mean, perhaps there have been times, even in the not so distant past, where a centrist fiscal conservative party, you know, had something to contribute to the discourse. You could argue that Ross Perot did in 1992. He ended up drawing equally from the two candidates and therefore had no real effect on the election. Um, this is not that moment. I, I do think most Americans do see that we're in a, a pretty stark binary choice now. Um, I am concerned, as Jonathan is, that there's enough disenchantment with Biden. His own uh, you know, unimpressive style has kind of unfortunately given fodder uh, you know, his gaffes, his stumbles uh, in public speaking and so on go viral on right-wing media. And that makes me worry that this stuff is going to sort of persuade so-called low-information voters. I think presidents in the past, I mean, we go back to FDR, um, you go back even to Nixon versus Kennedy, who were not, comparatively speaking, all that far apart. But successful candidates really did paint that choice in a presidential election as a very stark one, as one on which the American future depended. And I think Biden will do that. I think he absolutely needs to do that. But more important, I think even Democrats who have their qualms about him, whether it's about his age or whether it's he's done too much for the left or he's been too much for the center, whatever your personal quarrel with him, 
it's just it's just time to be a pragmatist and and time to recognize that the question as it was in 2020 uh, as it was in 2018 is really a referendum on Trump and whether you would want this man um, back in the White House. Uh, and, and so I think the, the trick becomes persuading the people who are, say, wobbly on Biden, wobbly on the Democrats, that the stakes really are that high. So I, I, just want to say, yeah, I just want to say something nice about President Biden. I mean, he negotiated brilliantly on the, on the debt ceiling. Uh, it is just fine. And, um, and people are concerned about they changed some uh, eligibility on food stamps, but actually they're going to be 78,000 more people, mostly homeless, who are going to be eligible for food stamps. And they ended the time limitations for the homeless uh, to get food stamps, which is a hugely important win because you know, if you're homeless, you're really not very good necessarily at filling out the paperwork to get um, more food stamps. And if, if you're not thrown off the SNAP program, that's, that's a big win. And I could go down the list, we could go through this, but it's an example of how Joe Biden in many ways has been uh, a very effective president, even, even if I worry that he's too, he's too old. John, and you have a terrifying sentence in your book, The Defining Moment. And if I can read it for a minute. In 1932, fascism was socially acceptable and even a bit trendy. And there was this movement uh, at the time across America, across Europe, yeah. uh, where fascism and authoritarianism was an attractive possibility. And you even uh, mentioned, because you discovered a, a speech that Roosevelt was going to give uh, that might have included language that would have been more authoritarian. Could you talk a little bit about that moment and also the decision to reject it? In other words, if there is an impulse or an attractiveness to authoritarianism, how does one reject it? Is it simply personal honor? conviction. Talk a little bit about that. Well, um, first of all, um, you know, whenever I see you, I think of Alan, uh, Evangelist's late husband, who was a dear friend of mine and my teacher uh, at Harvard in the 1970s. And he eventually became provost of Columbia University. And Nicholas Murray Butler, name might be familiar to some of you from Butler Library. He was the president of Columbia in the uh, 20s and early 30s, and he at one point said in this period that um, democracy uh, may not be the best system for people to uh, govern themselves. And there were a lot of people who wanted a stronger hand. There were newspapers that ran editorials and wanted a dictator. Studebaker had a car called The Dictator that sold surprisingly well in the middle of the Depression. Um, a Mussolini, who had come to power 10 years earlier, was popular not just in Italy, but in the United States and people like Lowell Thomas, the legendary broadcaster said very positive things about Mussolini. And so there was this sense that Congress couldn't get anything done and that we needed a stronger hand. The country is in the fetal position. The banks are closed when Roosevelt takes office. And um, so I, I found in his files at 
Hyde Park, uh, the draft of a speech that he was scheduled to give um, um, two days after he took office to the American Legion, um, a radio speech. And these were veterans in their 20s, 30s, 40s. And he said to them that in this draft that they would be at his disposal for the duration of the crisis. And this was very reminiscent of Mussolini's black shirts. The brown shirts hadn't quite come to power yet. Hitler was taking power in literally the same month. Um, but um, this was an appealing idea to a lot of people. Yeah, let's have the, um, the veterans. They, they can do what the president wants. They can guard the banks, do whatever he says. And Roosevelt decided not to give that speech. And we don't know why. John, can I just read the, the, the sentence that he sure. decided? As new commander-in-chief, under the oath to which you are still bound, I reserve to myself the right to command you in any phase of the situation which now confronts us. Right. So he didn't give that speech. Instead, he gave a pretty anodyne version of what he had said the day before in his famous first inaugural, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Um, but he did say in that in the inaugural and in his radio speech, that we need action and action now. So what he was basically saying was he was almost using the idea of what would have been very popular, a mild species of dictatorship as Walter Lippmann, the columnist advised him to assume. Uh, he was using it almost as a, a cudgel to say, look, if Congress doesn't act and enact my program, which they mostly did in the first hundred days, then we might have to think of in, in extra constitutional Terms, but he never had to actually issue the threat, and and he, his ability to lead and to, um, as one of his um, his uh, future aides, uh, Tommy the Cork Corcoran said in that famous inaugural address, it was like he pulled. You know, Camelot's big on Broadway now, so like he pulled the sword from the stone, right, and he just. It was a conjuring act almost, his ability to restore confidence. The country was in the fetal position. And so the same people who had been racing to get all their money out of these banks before they collapsed, remember they didn't have deposit insurance yet, and they put them under their mattress to get their money out if they could. The same people when Roosevelt told them in his first fireside chat, you know, hoarding is a terribly unfashionable pastime, like take your money out, he literally said from under the mattress and redeposit it in the banks as we reopen them on a healthy basis. And they did that. So any president who can get the pe people to go from fear and terror to faith that their government is looking out for them, that's leadership. And so are we going to get that from our leaders today? Probably not. But what we can get from them is action. And actually Joe Biden has delivered action and the CHIPS bill, the infrastructure bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, huge climate change improvements, uh, gun control. So there has been some action. And if he can frame that right and run the right kind of campaign, I think his odds are good of, of beating Trump, but it's no sure thing. So, David, you, you look at who it is that engineers those messages uh, over the past hundred years of different presidencies. 
why are we not at a moment when these achievements, these people at the very beginning of the Biden first hundred days, and they were, you know, sort of measuring him against the, the FDR first hundred days, we're, we're seeing, as John said, action and legislation going through. Um, why hasn't that landed with us? Well, look, I, I also think overall Biden has done a pretty good job. But I also think that the um, per, pertinacity, the persistence of this kind of right wing populism of the attachment to Trump is stronger. Most of us uh, did underestimate it, um, particularly after January 6th, thinking, aha, this will you know, break the fever, as people were saying. So Biden comes in, certainly a man of great experience, I would even say wisdom. He, he certainly was more knowledgeable and experienced than any Democrat in the field uh, in 2020, and, and on those terms really was the right nominee. Um, but I do think we have to admit he he's older, he doesn't come across as, as vigorous and as passionate as he used to. I think that's partly what's responsible. I think inflation, of course, um, has uh, in a way uh, counteracted the economic recovery that nonetheless continue. I mean, we have a strong economy. I mean, that, that's in some ways the whole problem, the rebound from COVID. So, so the positives have been in a way um, counterbalanced by these negatives. A lot will depend next year on the state of the economy and whether people are feeling optimistic about their economic future. I mean, the big difference between 1932 or the early 1930s and today is that our economic situation today is nowhere near as dire. So on those grounds, people shouldn't be searching for an alternative to capitalism or an alternative to democracy. It should, by all rights, be a matter of sort of fine tuning and figuring out the right policies. And maybe they're liberal policies, maybe they're conservative ones. Um, I think the difference is we do have uh, uh, this uh, you know, deep partisan attachment um, that is sort of causing um, a certain resistance or rejection of probably anybody who would be inhabiting the White House right now. Uh, is I don't it possible, know. Let me ask you, David, is it possible to manipulate the press, the media, in the way that uh, presidents did in the past with a constant 24-hour news cycle that is spread over hundreds of different media platforms? In, in other words, is it a problem of specificity in getting a single message across. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you think about, again, to use the FDR comparison, his fireside chats, one of which on the banking crisis, you know, he delivered uh, at the very beginning of his presidency, uh, he had a receptive national audience that wanted to hear what are you going to do to solve this crisis that Herbert Hoover for the last four years has been unable to solve in his inaugural address? And Roosevelt really was a master of this new medium of the radio, the fireside chat. People had given, presidents before him had given speeches that were delivered over the radio before. 
Hoover did, Calvin Coolidge did. FDR wrote the speech for radio. That's what was different. It was short, it was conversational. He realized how the medium could work. I think Trump had a similar uh, gift, perhaps accidental, with Twitter, that his own personal style, angry, impulsive, emotional, brief, uh, impulsive, was perfectly suited for Twitter. Uh, Biden is at the disadvantage of having come of age and learned his political style in a kind of older media universe. And I do think he struggles to get his message through uh, to those on the other side who he might in a different era have a better, had a better chance of, of reaching and persuading. In the end though, there are still enough people in the middle who are not diehard Trump voters. They may be Republicans, uh, they may be conservative, but as we saw in 2020, not all of them are ready to go another round with Trump. And it's those people I think that Biden really needs to pinch the deal with. Again, the, this, this debt uh, limit uh, compromise is going to be a good test. I don't know how well that messaging, you know, those Democratic talking points are making it out far and wide. We're mostly hearing from the Republicans. The media coverage has kind of skewed to cover how much the Republican dissenters and malcontents are complaining rather than putting forward uh, the White House's arguments. It doesn't matter at all, though. The next election is a long way away. We'll be, you know, 27 innings past this whole thing, all that matters is we appear to have avoided a default, which would have been crushing for the global economy. Everything else is just temporary noise and not, not right. no, but I'm saying it's symptomatic of a, a, a difficulty in this media environment of, you know, it used to be the president could say, I'm giving an Oval Office address, all three major networks would cover it, and the president would at least get his clean shot at putting across his message. Then afterward, there would be criticism counter messaging he, that's, does that. that's he, still does that. he still does that in the state of the union and if there was a big national security crisis he could do it from the oval office but it's true that the audiences have shrunk as the media is fragmented uh, i think what's arguably um, you know as important is that when you have these media of personal validation where people just tune in to have their prejudices confirmed um, it's really hard to engage in the persuasion that you were talking about before. Um, but it's also important to remember that the audiences are pretty small. And this point never gets made that you know, 130 to 140 million Americans voted in the last presidential election. And on a really good night, you know, Fox will get a couple of million, right? So you're talking about like, you know, way less than 2% of, of uh, the electorate is, is tuning in. And I, I think that Democrats sometimes, they, they suffer from a kind of a, you know, Trump um, trauma syndrome where they get sort of traumatized and they don't, uh, not so much deranged because I think their critiques of Trump are quite accurate, not at all deranged, but they, they think that he and his people are more powerful than they necessarily are. And they need to stop worrying about how those folks will react and just do what they think is right as long as they're not leading with their chins 
and saying dopey things um, that um, Americans don't care that much about. Um, certain parts of identity politics where they might be perfectly right on the merits, perfectly right what they say about, say, gender, and perfectly right that there's you know, discrimination against trans uh, people in this country that needs to be um, challenged. But that doesn't mean that all of these issues of say, you know, women's sports need to be taken to the top of the political agenda because ultimately they don't really have much to do with people where people really live. And, and you know, that tends to be more um, issues like uh, abortion yeah. or guns. They're scared about their kids um, going to school safely. And, and of course, the economy. So it's very important for the Democrats to have some message discipline when they're talking about issues. Where are the 138 million who voted who are not watching Fox News getting their information in their news? Where is a, a lot of it comes from Facebook? You know, they're getting it from all different sources. In some ways, they've kind of left cable news behind and they're getting it from other sources uh, that they you know, they say we're doing our own research, you know, which is something that professional journalists really don't like to hear because, you know, and they might think this is elitist, but they, there is something to be said for professionalism in assessing what's true and what's not true. And so they'll read something online about George Soros and they'll believe it even if it's untrue. And this is the retreat from the kingdom of facts is really what undergirds this whole conversation that we're not dealing with a shared reality of truth. And, and um, so the, you know, um, we're not living in a world where Walter Cronkite could say, that's the way it is, you know, September 22nd, 1978, you know, and, and people would kind of believe it, that they'd gotten the headlines. Now everybody has their own truth and that makes the environment scarier you can almost lay on a map of news deserts on top of Trump counties, and it's a perfect match because where people don't have local uh, news outlets, which are the lungs of democracy, they don't know what's going on in their own communities, and they're much more subject to demagoguery. And, and they, they, you know, they, they will have their fears played to and not, not have enough information to make uh, a smart decision in a democratic society. So this is all tied up in the um, collapse of the old business model of American journalism. And there isn't really uh, clarity yet on how people are gonna get their local news. I think the national news is in better shape. We have some very good reporting from national news organizations. Um, that are telling us what's going on, but a lot of people don't trust it. And they, um, you know, they rely on their own sources of news and that can make them putty in the hands of uh, banana Republicans. Well, let me pick up on that and, and the word truth, because David, you talked a lot about truthiness sort of entering as an alternative uh, beginning uh, in the uh, second Bush administration. And uh, what began as a comedic idea has filtered into 
uh, a way of reporting and a way of journalism. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how that concept of fungible truth uh, entered into the public discourse. Right. Well, I mean, you know, it was Stephen Colbert's term, and it was really made up in response, not, of course, to Trump, but to George Bush Jr., who said, you know, he would go with his gut. So Colbert said, you know, the truthiness is not what is factually true, but what feels true. <laughs> and, you know, but he was capturing a larger reality, I think, of human nature, which is that we all tend to kind of gravitate to those truths that we, you know, find <laughs> that agreeable, that we have some certain affinities for. So it requires a certain amount of discipline to sort of check one's political impulses, to scrutinize one's own biases. And that could be whatever your uh, political standpoint. Um, you know, we see it on the left uh, as well as on the right, uh, if not in the same degree. Um, and, you know, in, in my book, I write about um, Hannah Arendt had an essay on truth or lying in politics, mm -hmm. in which she points out that, you know, the political arena has never been the same as the courtroom or the philosophy seminar room or the historical archive. That is to say, we've always had contested truth in politics and that's what makes politics politics. Yes, we wanna be able to identify outright lies, conspiracy theories, but most of the time what we're arguing about is which facts do we give priority to? You know, for example, you know, John mentioned the issue of women's sports and you know, should a biologically male born uh, swimmer be competing uh, against female athletes? That, that's true. <laughs> that's going on. The question is, you know, is that going to be elevated as it is in a lot of right wing media into uh, a symbol that the republic is collapsing and all of our you know, time honored notions about gender are being exploded and we're entering some kind of, you know, dark era of, of I don't know what exactly they have in mind. Um, so it's not always just a matter of facts. I mean, there are facts that need to be corrected and we need to have scrupulous objective journalism that upholds that flag. But we also have to recognize these disagreements stem from differences of values, differences of priorities, uh, you know, different attachments that we all have. And so again, sort of come back what Kitty said at the outset, being able to try to communicate with individuals across these political divides, I think it's what's really important because in a fractured media environment, um, you don't have that Walter Cronkite voice that kind of automatically commands a certain deference from people from different points on the political spectrum. A lot of this has to be done by friends, by neighbors, by family members who maybe do have an in to open a conversation. Maybe you don't persuade them every time or even half the time, but to begin those conversations is a way to begin to change their understandings of political reality. I mean, I agree with that. I agree with that, but, but I do think that even though, um, as George Orwell you know, wrote in his, his great essay, Politics in the English Language, you know, the language has been used in other languages to manipulate the truth for forever. Um, there's a, a question of degree. So, you know, I wrote this biography of Jimmy Carter who exaggerated, and, you know, he 
sometimes uh, would spin a little bit as people would spin, but he promised not to t tell flat out lies as president and he didn't. And Donald Trump has told literally tens of thousands of lies. It's been added up by the, the Washington Post and you know, he lies every time he opens his mouth. He lies as easily as he breathes. So this has a terribly corrosive effect on our, our politics. And I don't think we've really come to terms with it yet. Um, and people can sometimes still discern you know, what's right when they react against George Santos, for instance, but then you have Republicans who are, you know, protecting George Santos. They're basically saying, well, his lies are, are much less important than, um, than petty political power. And I, I think a lot of this has been a retreat from ideology. I mean, it's fascinating to me how little the Republicans now care about government spending. Um, they really, I mean, they passed this bill, but you know, there are very few of them who actually truly care. Um, Trump doesn't want to cut entitlements anymore. And they realize, as Dick Cheney said years ago, deficits don't matter. It's basically their view now, which is very different from the Reagan idea. And so what they are interested in is using nationalism and cultural issues, cultural war issues for power. This is about power and then when you get power use what trump calls retribution against your enemies so what a lot of his supporters like is that he quote owns the libs but this is this is authoritarian um talk and and you know when you use it, the agencies of government for retribution against your political enemies which trump 100 will do desantis might well do if you got there. If you're doing that, you're, you're pretty far down that authoritarian road because that's a real hallmark. You don't have to abolish all elections to be an authoritarian. Most authoritarians, I mean, Hitler came to power through an election. You know, they continue to hold elections like Erdogan did uh, the other day in Turkey, but they're what Fareed Zakaria called, you know, fair and unfree elections or free and unfair elections. You know, they're, they're basically rigged and then they, They've rigged the media, they've rigged you know, the judiciary, and Trump accuses Democrats of doing this, but with him, everything is psychological projection, and it's what he wants to do. Fortunately, the judiciary stood strong in, in 2021 and 2020, and I think they can be expected to again. These authoritarian secretaries of state lost in 2022, the candidate, who would have not certified elections. So in some ways, 2022 was an enormously important election for protecting democracy, not because of anything that had to do with Congress, but because these authoritarians who were running in key states for Secretary of State are not in a position to not certify the election. See, they have a plan, which is very, very clear if you follow this stuff, to not certify. And then when certain states, enough states, two or three, don't report certified results and a certain date passes after a presidential election, then it goes to the House of Representatives. And under the Constitution, when a presidential election goes to the House, each state gets one vote and Republicans for years have controlled 
more state delegations than Democrats. So the Republican wins basically if it goes to the House. So their whole game- A storyline that was launched, by the way, in Veep in the second to last <laughs> season. <laughs> I, yeah, said, I, think people know, I think people have known about this for a while as a potential problem, but it became very real in 2020. And fortunately, I, I don't think it's something we're gonna have to worry about in, in 2024. We have, we have a question relative to that. We have a yeah. question in the chat about DeSantis and the authoritarianism of a governor. And I'd like each of you to sort of speak briefly to that. Um, is well, look, he? Go ahead, David. Well, I mean, I think there's a lot to be concerned about uh, with Ron DeSantis's record in Florida. He has uh, shown, you know, uh, a great desire to sort of um, be vindictive, to use these incredibly broad state powers, even if even if you believe there are sort of real problems of say, elementary school kids being taught age-inappropriate materials on sexuality. Uh, you know, there are ways to address that that don't involve sort of wholesale striking of books from curricula and library shelves. Uh, he's completely trying to remake the new college uh, of, of Florida with a completely new board so that, uh, you know, he can completely remake the character of the university, make it into a conservative school. Um, all that said, you know, I would take DeSantis as the Republican nominee in a heartbeat over Trump, because ultimately he's still sort of tethered to a mainstream politics, uh, can be restrained by the kinds of normal checks and balances that have restrained other uh, power-hungry presidents, whereas Trump's, you know, a psychological profile who's very different, as I think we've all seen and learned, who really will uh, stop at nothing um, or almost nothing uh, to work his will. I think he's just a, he's, he's, he's psychologically a different profile. And he's the one we really have to be worried about. Even if you want to say DeSantis has a slightly better chance of beating Biden, you still want to hope for DeSantis because uh, a return of Trump to power is the worst case scenario. I, I agree with that, but I don't think we should be under any illusions about DeSantis. You know, what he did with that um, new college to me is, is you know, I don't support it, but it's not out of bounds. But anybody in business watching what he did to Disney, I mean, Republicans are supposed to believe that, you know, the, the state can't bring down its jackboot on private businesses that way. And, uh, um, you know, if he brings that idea to Washington that, you know, he is the state, basically, and if he decides he doesn't like somebody, he will use any power at his disposal to try to crush them. And he might be more effective at it than Trump, even though I agree he's not as much of a, a menace ultimately. It's, it's a very serious threat, and, and I, I'm hoping that he's boxed himself in in certain ways that'll make it much harder for him to win a, a general election if he gets the nomination. For instance, a six-week abortion ban, which he signed in Florida, is very unpopular in the United States. And by the time the campaign is over, every Democrat will be talking about that, that you know, we can expect that nationally if DeSantis is elected. So, you know, people again, they, they have some DeSantis trauma syndrome also. You know, he can be beaten. Um, 
But if he runs against Biden, he has a much better chance than Trump does because of the generational issue. You know, American presidential elections, and I've covered every one of them going back to 1980, are ultimately about the future. Even if you're Trump and your future is making America great again, going back to the past, it's still a vision of what's to come. And if Joe Biden is saying, you know, more of the same when I'm 86 years old, that's not really a very um, compelling um, vision, to, especially to mobilize young people. So you could have turnout problems. And, you know, DeSantis could win back some of those suburbanites who are the real swing voters. And I just want to say one other thing when we were talking about the roots of all this, don't forget two names, Rush Limbaugh and Newt Gingrich. Yeah. And in terms of the debasement of the language and using uh, the politics of personal destruction, Gingrich was a, a really despicable pioneer in all this. And, you know, he once put out a list of what Republicans should call Democrats, you know, sick, twisted, corrupt. And he was telling them, anytime you open your mouth talking about a Democrat, call them sick, twisted, corrupt, a bunch of other words. And then, you know, Limbaugh, after they get rid of the fairness doctrine in the 80s, he has a, you know, several hours a day, an advertisement for hating on Democrats and liberals. And he's poisoning the minds of millions of people in a way arguably much more destructive than Fox um, in terms of you know, just taking these rural areas from being maybe 55-45 Republican or at worst 60-40 Republican to 70-30 or 80-20 Republican. And that's what's made it harder for Democrats to win these elections as well as, and you mentioned this early on, you know, not connecting to non-college educated voters. Seeming Let me interrupt for a minute because we're starting to end the hour and I don't want us to leave with the taste of Rush Limbaugh in our mouths. <laughs> let, let me ask you quickly, uh, what should we be reading? What's gonna give us hope? What should be watching? Uh, whether it's, a, you know, a documentary or whether it's even an entertainment piece that will start to give us a little bit of hope for 2024. So quickly, a kind of rapid fire between David and John. Well, I guess what I would say might not be to give hope, but I think we'll give awareness of where the other side is. I think, uh, you know, making presumptions about this audience, um, you know, those of us on this side who are worried about Trump's return should be reading more right-wing media, right-wing websites, commentary, and really getting an appreciation for what's firing them up, the kinds of uh, inflated or diluted notions they have in their head about you know, various issues, whether it's cultural issues like transgender stuff or the way they interpret the budget deal. Um, I think sometimes the, the gulf in communication um, can work to our disadvantage because again, you know, you don't know what, if you don't know what messages the person's really hearing consistently from the other side, you're not necessarily well equipped to uh, push back on them. So I'm gonna sound biased because, you know, I've worked for NBC and MSNBC for a long time, but I think some of my colleagues, many of them, most of them are really smart and they by and large do a good job of keeping people informed, not only about what the more liberal position is, but about what the other side is saying. It's true, it's through a lens of MSNBC, but 
MSNBC is not the mirror image of Fox. We do live in the world of facts. Not, not I mean, there are mistakes, but we we try to stay within the guardrails. And I also think, like, when you ask what should give us hope, anybody who doesn't have hope hasn't been paying attention. I mean, my daughter interviewed Hillary Clinton last week uh, before an audience, and she said flatly, "Joe Biden's going to win," you know, the election. And I think she she believes it. And so there's real hope. I think what um, some people like Simon Rosenberg, who was the only Democratic strategist who was right about 2022, that wasn't going to be a red wave. He, he's talking about the 55% solution, organizing in your states and your communities for the burn, 55%. If Democrats can get 55% in the next election, they can really cause a, you know, a real realignment where Republicans just have no choice but to ask whether they've been headed down the, the wrong road. And victory does get people's attention, especially if it's a certain level of, of victory. So, uh, you know, I, I do think that Democrats should stop. Does that mean every state election that's coming up, every small election? Yeah, because the state legislatures, yeah, because people go, oh, well, my state's not competitive in a presidential election. As everybody now knows, it's sure competitive when it comes to abortion, you know, and, and the reason Democrats are in so much trouble is they've lost all of these state legislative seats. Obama and the Democrats lost 800 of them in the 2010 midterms. It really changed things. So I think Democrats need to stop wringing their hands and start ringing doorbells and using the call tools. Nowadays, if you're interested, say there was just a recent election that was very uh, encouraging for Democrats for the mayor of Jacksonville, yeah. Florida, which used to be you know, a Republican city and a Democrat won. And one of the reasons they won is that Democrats from all over the country were using these very easy to use call tools to call down there. So you don't have to live in the area. And by the way, I've heard from people who've been on these calls, I'm sure many of your you know, viewers tonight have, that the voters, when they reach them, they never ask, do you live in this community? You, know, you can be from 3,000 miles away and you can get involved in these local races and make a difference in it in a state rep campaign. I, I know we have to stop now, but yeah. what a great place to start, which is a call to action and a call to call <laughs> and some positive things we can do. This has been incredible. Thank you both. I'm gonna turn it over to Kitty for the outro. Um, yes, I just wanna say thank you so much to Jonathan and David and to Evangeline for this excellent call and conversation. We really appreciate it. And I, I do want to um, hearken to the fact that we are not in a fetal position. <laughs> we are not in a fetal position. We are, we are taking action now. So go to our website. There's some great call to actions. There will be more to come. And uh, thank you so much to Evangeline and to Jonathan and David for your time, your talent, your wisdom. We really, really appreciate this conversation. It was so important and so valuable and want to say good night to everybody. Thank you so much, everyone. Have a great night. Thank you.